Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 666 with Umberto Gibin. Always go for the top. Always go for the gold. Don't ever compromise. And because eventually something is going to happen that you have to. But if you're really thinking about compromising, you're going to miss a step. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash unstoppable, and when you run your first payroll, you'll get your first three months free. Again, that's gusto.com slash unstoppable. Were you aware that 89% of guests will research a restaurant online before dining out? This is why it is so important for you to be mindful of what your online presence is. Visit getbento.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your Bento Box website today. Bento Box empowers restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships online. One more time, that is getbento.com slash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Umberto Gibin. Umberto, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am. I do, yes. <laughs> yes. I cannot wait to dive into your story. Uh, so many years of experience. I'm sure you have incredible advice, but Umberto Gibin was born in Venice, Italy, and began learning the hospitality trade at several prestigious European restaurants and hotels. In 1979, he took his hospitality career to California, working in multiple Bay Area in LA restaurants. With this experience, he went on to serve as one of the founding team members of Il. Say this for me one more time. I know I'm going to say it wrong. Il Fornaio. Il Fornaio. I uh, still destroyed that, which he helped scale to six locations before departing to join the Kimpton Hotel Group. By 2004, he had rejoined mentor Larry Mandel to open, uh, say this one for me one more time too. Poggio. I'm like the word, like my last name might be Cacciatore, but Italian, just, Italian names just, just always. Screw me up. I, I, I apologize. Uh, today, Umberto deploys decades of top-tier experience as owner-operator of Perbaco, Barbaco, both located in San Francisco uh, on California Street. I cannot wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Well, um, in the restaurant, actually in any business, but more so in the restaurant business, uh, consistency, it is a must. So everything, every time I talk to my staff, one thing I tell, we are go- as good as the last dish of pasta that we have just delivered. Mm. Uh, we have to be good all the time, not just 50% or 80%. Uh, every day has to be the best. Yeah. I think that must come in uh, super handy when you're working at a restaurant like this under uh, the mentorship of someone like you who has so much acclaim and experience in the industry. Like you're not as good as the team you're on. Uh, I mean, you are only as good as the the weakest player in your team, but if you come onto a a restaurant as somebody who is new to a restaurant that has an outstanding reputation, just because you're on the team doesn't mean that you've necessarily 
you know, it doesn't end there. You gotta, you're only as good as like your last dish, like you say. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And one important thing is we never stop learning. Yes. And uh, often when I interview candidates and so, they ask me, so what are you looking on someone? So somebody that continue, want to continue to grow by learning. Because if you think that you, lear- that you know everything, you're a loser. Yeah, I mean, you got into this industry. You got into this industry in the '70s. I can only imagine how much the industry has evolved in the past 50 years. Um, so, just that that ability to continue to learn and to evolve with the industry must be super valuable. I would imagine. Well, uh, f- from Europe, when I actually learned this uh, this trade, and when I when I work in, in the top restaurants from St. Moritz to Villa d'Este in in Italy and so on. Um, those days were completely different than now. As I remember we wouldn't even speak to the guests. Uh, now the guest wants a piece of you. They they, they, they want to talk to you. They want to know about you, your story and so on. And it's a it's a different game. But do I like the one the one? I think this is more more humane. Let's say yeah. you have a a, a, a a contact with the guest that you can really uh, treasure, and uh, also you can tailor the experience much better. Yeah, and I mean. This kind of is, is a good segue into the beginning of your career. You worked in some of Europe, or Europe's most prestigious hotels. Um, do you want to just list them off real quick? I know there's three in your, your, your bio. I'm afraid to say the name of some of these hotels. Go for it. Well, let's see if I remember because it was a long, long time <laughs> uh, Pellegrino. Uh, wait, no. Sorry, keep going. Uh, um, let's see. Probably chronologically, I would say that uh, Villa d'Este in yep. Como was one. Uh, the Caprice and Annabelle restaurants in London, uh, the St. Moritz uh, uh, Hotel in uh, um, St. Moritz. Yeah, those are the three that I saw. Okay, yeah. and the uh, Thai event in, in um, uh, Paris, um, and several others, uh, the Metropole Hotel in Como as well. Um, boy, I, the, the reason why I thought this was a good segue is because you, you said... You started by saying when you first got into this industry, you weren't even supposed to talk to the guests. Oh, I forgot the very first one. I'm like, God, <laughs> the Schloss, Schloss Hotel in Kronberg, right, right outside of the Frankfurt. That was my very first restaurant job. Yeah. What was, it, what was the culture like in these restaurants compared to what they are today? <laughs> Well, uh, it was pure dictatorship. Let's put it in this way. Pure it's, dictatorship? Absolutely. Okay? <laughs> absolutely. The... the now we call them managers. At those days, they were called Metro Hotel. I mean, the Metro Hotel was the, the the leader of uh, of the dining room, and these people were extremely skilled in identify even the the minus uh, flaw in the dining room and so on. But they also were allow me to use the word bastard, you know, because <laughs> they treated us like they were, we were, you know, third third world people. Um, but. Uh, I can say that I'd learned tremendously from from these people because uh, technically, yeah, uh, and maybe I also learned not to be like that. Uh, mm. But when I did come to this country, I have to to be honest, I brought a little bit of baggage with me. That slowly, slowly, I had to kind of let it go because either you want to be successful and have, you want to have people working for you and respecting you, or you want to have people that just fear you, yeah. not respect you. Yeah, we can get into that transition of coming stateside and having to kind of evolve with a different culture. Uh, but what were the technologies? You said that these people, uh, these maitre d's, was it maitre d's? Is that what maitre you said? Yeah. yeah. Um, didn't, I don't say it nearly as cool as you do. But um, well, <laughs> the reason why I'm correcting you, I'm sorry. No, please it, do. It, it is here when we say maitre d', it is a glorified host. Okay. In, back in Europe, a maitre d'hotel it is the, what manage. I do, basically. Yeah, yeah. You manage, you are the leader of, of, of the 
the dining room crew. So you said you learned a lot of good technical things from these individuals, how to read a room, I'm assuming, all these like little details. Can you get specific, some of the biggest lessons, maybe even be specific as to who these people were, uh, key mentors that really helped form who you are today? Well, uh, remember again, these, the, the restaurants and hotels that I mentioned a little bit earlier, the ultra-luxurious places. Mm. So uh, we... For, uh, the uh, the first place where I worked for the ma- for for the matter we had uh, the server and myself uh, that I was the assistant we had three tables mm-hmm. so we actually had basically three people serving three tables if you if you can imagine so everything had to be perfect from uh, the, how you you put the the silverware down and which from which side you put it down how you serve it uh, uh, where you the position the sauce all of this uh, uh, that technique that now they're not necessarily part of the experience. They do not make the experience of, uh, of for the guests, but in those days, they were very important for us to complete in the eyes of the Metro Hotel. Why do you think that was? Why do you think these little details? What what made the industry so so rigid back then? I feel like today it's kind of loosened up. What's what's changed? Well, the the clientele, obviously. Um, in those days, who frequented the, the, the places were aristocrats and uh, rich people, and they wanted to be treated as such. Mm-hmm. There was in Europe, probably still now, there is the the uh, uh, how can we say the layers. You know, you have the ultra rich, and then you had little middle class, and then you had the poor. So mm-hmm. uh, the the people that could afford to stay in those hotels or eat in those restaurants, they were really wealthy people. Yeah, and, it, it, people don't travel as much. I feel like people travel more today. It's more accessible to your average person, right? People True. go on uh, holiday much more now than they did probably in the, the 50s and 60s, I'm assuming. I don't want to make too many True. assumptions. Yeah, absolutely. But those people that did travel probably had buku bucks because they could afford to travel, right? Yes. So they're going to they're gonna be looking for that ultimate experience that you're delivering. Correct, yes. Yeah. And it was it was uh, known that, that how you, from the moment that you entered the dining room as a, as a member of the staff, uh, you had your place. Uh, you couldn't just walk around freely and so on. You had, to, you had to stay there by the corner where you could see your station and, and you see you could see the body language and so on. Once again, I was never allowed to talk to the guest. Um, I was just I knew exactly what I needed to do. How did you know? Um, you get the cue. Well, you, you're trained to you know to follow your let's call it captain, um, and you also contrary to here now uh, the busser here it is a support. Uh, they clear the, the 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 table and reset the table. Nothing else. In those days, when I started, the buzzer needed to know more than the server. You had to know the menu 100 percent because you were bringing in the food. As a matter of fact, to be served, and if you missed the sauce, you were dead. Oh, so there you yeah, go. Yeah. Um, thinking back at these times, uh, these these hotels and restaurants that you were working at early in your career, is there any individual that stands out that some as somebody you respected and, and admired and really kind of helped? teach you the the industry I, I met several people that really um some of them i hated but and others that i say absolutely i would like to be like them uh, and i have three mentors here in in my life now that really every time i i have to think i go to either one or the other or the other according to the situation but back then stay let's say at, at the very first job that i had in in germany the servers that I was working for and with, he was Austrian. Uh, Kurt, I never forget him. Um, he was, <laughs> he was an 
an animal, excuse me. Uh, Use an animal? Oh, God. <laughs> well, he, knew, he knew his work immaculately in the dining room. He was just a gentleman. He knew exactly how to dance around the table. But with me, I don't know if he, he wanted to shape me. He wanted to for me to succeed. And he did it in the way that probably he learned himself. I remember I was 150 pounds in those days, huh? So very skinny, and I was carrying a tray with with dirty dishes from the terrace to the kitchen, and that probably was a good almost a quarter of a mile, I have to say. Wow. And I had to carry this, and it would be side by side, and with this thumb hitting me in my ribs to see how strong I was, and then he would whisper in my ears and says, "Before you drop it, you let me know, okay?" And he would follow me in the kitchen until I, I, I then I, I landed the the tray on on um, on the table and I was exhausted because of course yeah, of course and it was good job you know then he will tell me and I remember another time I don't know if we had time to do this um, we had a, a big banquet of uh, um, American general and I went into the dining room to do f- few, a few things and I came back and I was late to the for the parade they were all going out at the same time and he said something to me I can't remember now what and I started crying Mm. And I couldn't stop. I had to go down in the bath. I just couldn't stop because I knew I didn't do anything wrong, but it made me feel in front of everybody else that I was the worst person. And you think that when I came back, he would kind of say, all right, I'm sorry, and everything else. The only thing he had to say is, I thought you were a man. Okay. <laughs> so he destroyed me even further. <laughs> what were the, what, what, how, like, if you had to, like, distill it down to one or two things that he taught you about how to be, how to act, what would you say that the biggest way he influenced you was? Um, he, he taught me the discipline. You, you need to be um, strong. You need to be focused all the time. You can't uh, let the guard down because something is going to happen. So that's what I learned from him. And, uh, um, of course, beside the technical side of, uh, and the, the uh, theoretical side of, of the business from a little bit of wine and, uh, and, and, and on and on and on. But um, when I... When I uh, Maybe because I fear them. That, remember what I said earlier? It was not so much respect, but it was more of a fear. Therefore, you didn't want to make a mistake. And that's what I took away. Now, there are way, other ways of teaching. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's something that's very uh, common with people that are attracted to the hospitality industry is that we don't like to disappoint people. You call it fear, but we, you know, it's, a, it's, a call, it's a, that fear of falling short right? of the expectation of we want to please people. We want to be accepted. We want people to, to, to like us, right? You think that might have had something to do with it? No, no. no? Uh, because once in those days, well, we, we had to satisfy the guests. And for yeah. us to, to satisfy the guests, uh, it's... The difference between now and then, I'm thinking, I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah, is th- uh, in those days we were pleasing the guests by being perfect mm. in everything, every move that we, that we see and the smile. Um, but there was no really much interaction with mm. the guests. Right now, it, it, in this today, uh, it is different. Uh, you. Ha- the, the hospitality is much is far more important than the technical side mm. of, of the work. Naturally, I, you don't want me to drop a dish on your lap mm-hmm. or spill a, a full bottle of wine on your table. That is absolutely uh, is absurd, you know, for this to happen. But it's such, m- much more important how you make the guests feel when they come to your house. Yeah, and that is a different skill altogether. I think that might, that we might unpack that more as we go down in when you transition to the Western mm-hmm. um, or American. Uh, service, but what you did with your, your, the last mentor was his name Ken. 
Kurt. Kurt, thank you. Uh, I like what you did there, and I believe that we are a compilation of all the people that influenced us before. That, that we've all the the relationships. We're you know we're we're a compilation of all the relationships we've experienced and had uh, going through our lives. So who were the other uh, key mentors going chronologically, like the, the, the all the Kurts um, that influenced you? The, the people that come to mind, the, or the experiences you had progressing through your career. Well, luckily, there were only a, a couple of Kurds. Otherwise, <laughs> would be here a long time. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I would have stayed in the yeah. industry if I met any more. But than he that. was a good influence, right? He was. Yeah. Well, he was a good and a bad in a way. Now, when I think of it and I tell the story, I say, "Well, I definitely don't want to be a Kurt, although maybe <laughs> I, I, I was." But you can tell he cared about you. I, he did. Yeah. And he wanted me to learn, and and I learned tremendously. What what I did after after that, and how quickly. I rose to the to the to the rank. It is because of the foundation, and that's what he taught me. Again, be disciplined, be mm. focused, and always pay attention to the surrounding because that's you, you're going to catch anything that you that you need to catch. Um, there are other ways of teaching that. We learn that in, yeah. in, in different way. Um, chronologically, see if I, if I can remember in Saint Moritz, we had um, this metro d'hotel that was. Amazingly elegant in the dining room, and uh, um, he, that in, in those days, also because there were so many regulars, he had a relationship with a lot of the guests. And the, the difference between uh, the hotel, which were occasional um, guests, or or they, they were traveling, and so on, there is because it was a, a ski resort with a lot of people coming back every year. So there, there was this this. Uh, um, Report, mm. and he knew everybody by hand, by name, um, the way he was talking to to uh, the ladies and and so on. So, hmm, that's exactly how you need you want to approach. You want to, to keep the distance, but yet be friendly, so that they know that you are on on their side, that you're there to to help them for everything else. In London, um, there was a caprice. A, the caprice, yes. exactly. Um, the, there was a, a, I guess we can call it. Let's say a captain because he was a little bit higher, okay. higher ranked than, than, than myself. Um, that had an incredible skills in with the carving uh, the, the different uh, animals from duck and everything else. And I learned from from him this technique, this uh, technique that was invaluable when I was working then elsewhere in uh, in Europe um, at the Villa d'Este. Uh, the metro hotel also was an, an amazing he could he could walk into the dining room and tell you that there was a salt and pepper shaker missing among 50 tables for ex- for example so now does it does it mean anything right now probably not but to me it was important at that time because it, it will tell me i for detail it is what is important Mm, yeah, I mean, especially in, I, I feel like when, when you're not supposed to talk to the guest, you need to find some other way to communicate. And the only way, other way you can communicate is paying attention to the detail and reading body language mm-hmm. and being ahead of the guest, right? And it sounds like that's kind of where you were. You were learning these foundations, these basics. Correct. Um, any other key experiences or mentors or anything that really influenced who you are today before you made the trip over the ocean to uh, California? Mm, okay, not just because I wanted then to mention the. Please. When I came, when I left Europe, um, it was just to come and see how San Francisco was all about. Um, I wasn't didn't I had a good job in in in, uh, in Italy and so on. I just wanted to to come here, um, so I kind of left everything behind and and I thought that I have a good foundation and think I can probably do a, a very good job here. And I um, my first job in in uh, in. Uh, 
San Francisco was at Ernie's, um, the venerable restaurant, which is now closed a long time, which kind of mirrors very much what we were doing in Europe. But in my career here, I, um, let's say, collected three mentors. Uh, one is Sirio Maccioni, the patriarch owner of Le Cirque in, in uh, New York, as uh, the ultimate host. Stan Bromley in the hotel side, hospitality plus and uh, employee relationship. And then Larry Mindel uh, for excellence. Once again, um, he told me that always go for the top, always go for the gold. Don't ever compromise. And because eventually something is going to happen that you have to. But if you're really thinking about compromising, you're going to miss a step. And that's, that's what it is. And he also, I took from him business, uh, business savviness and so what, on. He was, um, where did he come into your life? At what point? He was later, right? What? Much later. It was yeah. 1979. Yeah, I would love to talk more about what you just shared with us. But keeping it chronological, you said those three mentors. Go back to the first name you just mentioned. What The first name was? Sirio uh, Maccioni. Sirio Maccioni. What what did he teach you? Where was this, and what exactly? How how did he influence who you are? Funny because I never, never even worked with the gentleman. I, I just learned to respect him by reading about him. Uh, when I came here in, in the states in 1970, late 78, he was the king of New York, and Le Cirque was the top restaurant in New York, and he was always listed as the consummate uh, host. So I started following him. Um, by reading everything about him, uh, the family, and so on, and every time that I, that I would read what he did in the dining room, what, what, uh, how he he, he talked to, to people, and so on, and said, that is who you want to be if you are in the restaurant business. Can you paint a picture of the values and the standards through which he he ran his restaurants and his hotels? Uh, once again, he's one of those gentlemen that he came through the rank himself. Uh, he came to the United States, uh, started as, as a busser and so on, and then he moved on and became, and I, I, don't, I don't remember when he came to the United States because obviously he's a little older than I am. Um, so the, New York in those days was pretty much like Europe when we left it. And um, he was old school, old guard, and he knew that, again, in order to make everybody happy, he was the, the patron, he was the host, and he would just go from one table to another, and he knew everybody by name. He was also criticized at one point by, by this, because the, uh, when they remodeled, um, Ruth Reichel was the, the uh, food critic at the New York Times in, the, in those days, and she went in in disguise, and he did not recognize her, and she received a, a regular service. Whereas, another she went back. She went back another day uh, as a Ruth Reichel, and of course she knew her, and she was treated like a queen. So you got to be careful when you you know yeah. when you do that. So yeah, interesting. Um, so actually, I think this is a good point to take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. 
That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention you, you've got to compete with the big guys, but how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto, that's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. We're back, and uh, let's get into the second. You see there are three mentors. You kind of just kind of broke down the first key mentor, what you learned from him. Uh Dive, unless there's anything else that you want to add, I don't want to cut you short there. I had the chance, no, no, I, I had the pleasure uh, of and the honor of meeting Sirio Maccioni when we opened, uh, when I was working for uh, the Aqua Group and we're opening in the Bellagio in 1997. Okay. And they were opening Le Cirque and uh, Il Circo there with the, with, the, with the children. And he came to visit. I can't tell you, to me it was like, meeting a god mm. I, I shook his hands and i told them all about my admiration for him and 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 again i never worked with the, with the gentleman so but he is he, a person that kind of always always um looked up to and every time i, I would see his picture i would say this is it mm. so where um where did this, the second mentor that you mentioned come into your life? At what point in your career? Almost in the same way, because Stan Bromley, um, Bromley arguably you. the best hotel general manager in the world, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, uh, until retirement, the general manager of the Four Seasons, and also the, the, the gentleman that will open different Four Seasons around the country. What made he, him the best? Like once again, it's, here we go, the, the eye for details. Mm-hmm. If you walk into the... the uh, hotel that he was managing you already you felt that you're going to be taken care of because his persona was was and his knowledge um and attention and hospitality was basically trickled down to the rest of the staff and the and the reason why they were following because he treated this staff like they were family mm. Uh, there was there was no difference between one janitor to uh, concierge or, or, or whatever. Everybody had the same importance for him in taking care of the guests, and that is absolutely correct. There's no one in the restaurant that has a lesser uh, role. If we think that the dishwasher is a dishwasher, well, if you don't have clean dishes, what are you going to do? Mm. So I'm curious, and I agree that there needs to be that level of soul. You need to treat your employees more than the transaction, but like a family. Like a, there needs to be that relationship there, right? Where do you draw the line? How far can you go? Like, is, can you can you be too nice? Can you be too friendly? Can you can? Is there a line that's that's possible to cross? Yes, um, and young manager do make this mistake because they think that they need to ingratiate themselves with the themselves with the with the staff therefore they kind of they tend to be a little friendlier and so on and that's the big mistake because immediately the the staff will recognize that and in most cases in some cases not all the time they will take advantage um, when you set the standards and the rules there's no other ways of going so first is that's the important things the important thing is setting the goals setting the standards and then you become 
friendly with everybody else because there's there's got to be the understanding that what I told you to do, there's no deviation. I don't care who you are, but I'm going to treat you with respect and I'm going to te- I'm going to teach you to get there if if you don't know it. Uh, if you miss a, a step and I see that I can bring you there, I can try again. If you show me that you don't care or if I even detect that you just do it a perfunctory job, you don't belong in the team. What else did Bromley ta- teach you? So he taught you how to, to treat your employees like family. What else did he teach you? Um, oh, the, the relationship with the guests. Uh, once again, you know, you, you are in a hotel, uh, you have regulars and, we, and we're not, but he was... Let me ask you a question, actually. Oh, okay, you turn the table on. How <laughs> many times? How many times you walk into a hotel when you when you travel, um, first class or uh, three stars or whatever, whatever, whatever it is? How many times do you see the general manager walking around and greeting you personally? Never. Okay, Stan <laughs> Bromley was there. Okay, that's exactly what the difference is. Okay, so the presence, caring. Correct. You, there's no other way to say you care than Correct. being present, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, my not the thing. <clears throat> my degree. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, from hotel school is actually hotel management. Okay. Uh, and, but I never, I never used that because all is like the Danny Rumbera. Mm-hmm. But if I wanted to be a general manager, of, because back then in Europe, if you were a general manager of the hotel, you're almost like the mayor of the town. You yeah. know, you're very, you're very important. So it was very glamorous. But I still remember again. That's how Stan Bromley remind, reminded me of all of the people that I met. They were down on the floor waiting for the guests to arrive waiting to, to shake their hands and even sometimes take him to the room and that's the difference mm-hmm. now can you do this now I really don't I don't think so because there's so many other things that will be thrown at you but to run your business that's how you need to do it guests will keep you alive but you need to treat them like guests what was it about the front of the house the, the restaurant side of things that you think you were drawn to um, once again, the first job in, in Germany, I was uh, 15. It was my first year of hotel school. And uh, um, my, the, the, during the, the summer vacation, uh, restaurants and hotels will send in uh, requests um, for uh, people going to do an apprenticeship, you know, just uh, to learn. And maybe it was uh, cheap labor, I guess. I'm, okay. I'm, not, I'm not sure. And I remember arriving in, uh, in Frankfurt. First of all, they sent me to the barber shop immediately because my hair was too, were too long. Uh, and then they gave me a tail suit. And I said, wow. Uh, I walked into the dining room and it was this magnificent room with, decorated with the brocade and so on, the tables with long tablecloth. The, the tables, I mean, you could go around with the, with the scooter. On, but there was so much room between one table and another. <laughs> Not like now that they all yeah. come in together. And then when the room filled up, and every single movement was like a ballet. Uh, and you, the only noise that you would hear is the clinking of, uh, of the silverware of the guest. I said, this is it. I like it. I like it. I like this. Was it just the energy, the, the, the seriousness, the professionalism? The, gla- the glamour, the, the, mm. the, the luxury. The, um, to feel like you're a part of something special, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so when does it make sense to start talking about, I think, a big part of your career, obviously, uh, Il for, I'm going to say this wrong again. Say it for me one more time. Il Fornaio. Il Fornaio. Uh, when did... Uh, Take us to that transition. You know, I think you worked at three restaurants in California before making that transition. How, how did you find this team? Take us, take us to that point where this, this was an opportunity for you. Um, when I first came here, a little tiny story. Yeah, please. I met 
a few people when I was working on the ship, and they were from Vallejo. Uh, the mayor, the trash collector, and uh, the attorney for the mayor. And like every other passenger, they will tell me, oh, if you want to come to San Francisco, please let us know. We'd be happy to help you and so on. It happened that these people also had two restaurants most likely coffee shop at the one at the beginning one at the end at the end uh, the end of the city Vallejo and I went to work for them um, for six months I was two dollars and 25 cents an hour I believe and the most tips I've ever made was eight dollars I said this is not cannot be San Francisco experience <laughs> so my then girlfriend said once you come to San Francisco and uh, through a um, a recruiter, I actually got a job at Ernie's. She called directly the, the owners in front of me, and that job cost me $400, by the way, <laughs> which I made in two nights. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ernie's was my very first job, it was a night only. And then uh, Chow opened a much more casual, which was Larry Mindell and Spectrum Foods in those days. And I wanted to have an, a, a second job, so I got a job for lunch at, at Chow. And after that, moved away at Donatello, which was the best Italian restaurant in the city. Okay. I got, I'm curious. Why, how did this first restaurant, Ernie's, cost you $400? I think there's something on this. Well, <laughs> it's because I went to a recruiter. Oh, uh, so you paid for the Correct. Gotcha, those, gotcha, gotcha. Right, right now, but actually. There might have been a story the, behind the difference. <laughs> the difference now, when you go, uh, if, if you um, engage a recruiter, the employer pays for the job gotcha. normally is the employer actually looking for so when I went when she, my, my then girlfriend introduced me to this Maxine Lockley which now I'm, I, I met the daughter afterwards um, she said I don't really do I don't place front of the house she was a, a, a company was chef agency and said but let me see what I can do again she called uh, um, Victor Gottis at home and she got me an, in, a, an interview the next day but that cost me money because she actually got yeah. me a job. Gotcha, gotcha. And but you made it was. back in two nights, you That's said. right. That's good money that was good. in the 80s. Oh, yeah. my God, it was good money. <laughs> it's really good money. Uh, any key lessons from Ernie's before we kind of transition to, I want to learn about the, the impact or the impression that Larry made on you, your first impression, but anything that's worth unpacking before you well, progress forward? Ernie's pretty much was really, the, against the continuation of my um, background from, uh, from Europe. Yeah. It was... Uh, all good transition very fancy uh, table side service uh, carving and uh, flambeing so you, a continuation you, you of name what it. exactly yeah okay. so it wasn't different um, than what I than, than what I know you mentioned know. earlier sorry I cut you short no. you, you mentioned earlier um, that you had a kind of shed some of the habits that you developed working in such fine dining and fine uh, atmospheres was that the, the transition to um, chow yeah, Chow definitely was much more casual. They were doing on on eighty seats restaurant. Uh, we would do three undercovers on those days, so you had to move. You had to yeah, no, take us through no, that transition. Take us through how you had to evolve to match the atmosphere and the culture of this restaurant. Well, uh, the, the the biggest uh, um, challenge, I guess, is now you you without setting aside all the rules. You kind of had to compromise in order to make yourself fast, because if you had to wait for everybody to be, you know, not, not so much to be finished, uh, to continue serving from the right and cleaning from the left, like supposedly we, we, are, we are supposed to do, um, 
you would waste time. Mm. Um, you were carrying one extra. I was. Ne- I would never carry more than two dishes in in at the time. There you go three and sometimes even four. So you kind of forego some of the technique because for for the essence of speed. But the guests didn't mind as long as they had the food and they had the fast uh, and there was some interaction and so on. So that that was the the, the big change. What was yeah. it like being in such a like a. Uh I don't know the the right word to explain it, but but in such a formal environment to go into more of a casual environment, did you enjoy that? The being able to engage the, the guests a little bit more was that a good thing or a bad thing? For you? Mm, originally, not so much because again, I was still thinking the the, the old fashioned way, the way I, I, I learn how to to work, and uh, what probably was bothering me the most is to see the the rest of my colleagues how how. Uh, sloppy they were in order to get whatever they want they, they want to and uh, sometimes the guests were they could have they were a little bit freaking word they use abusive and so abusive but, yeah. T- towards you not being fast or being too t- no no uh, they were just um, not the same clientele that would be at Ernie's let's put th- in this way do you think that um do you think you how was how was your re, your relationship with the other your coworkers coming from such high fine dining to a more casual setting? Do you think you might have had a little chip on your shoulder? Is that possible? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> how did you learn to work through that ego? That that never bothered me actually because uh, I'm the same person that I was then and now. I have a chip on my shoulder and I think that I'm the best and there's no. If you no, don't believe it, no one else will, no, right? I don't really care. <laughs> Um, no, and I'm actually not even joking. The, the, the fact is, I know that I know that I know my, my my business, and at an early stage when I was again waiting on tables, I used everything that I know to make it perfect for the guest and for myself. Okay. The you know the rest of the people, if they if they wanted to to follow me or to learn from me, that that's fine. Um, or otherwise, you know, everybody was on their own anyway. So, all right, let's talk about how you cross paths with Larry for the first time. Uh, how did you find yourself in, the, in this opportunity? I uh, met I met Larry at Chow. He okay. was the the owner and founder of, of Spectrum Foods, and Chow was either the third or the fourth restaurant that actually they, they opened. And Chow was actually C I A O, no C H O W. Okay, <laughs> like the Chow Chow. Um, it was the restaurant that uh, broke uh, the mold of Italian restaurant in the city. Um, Italian restaurant in the city in those days, they had a menu that was three miles long. You had spaghetti, 15 styles, scalopina with three million sauces and, and whatever. He, this restaurant was built, was sleek, um, was rubber like Pirelli. There was a chow scooter on the wall. The menu was all brand new from Milano with all the, the, the new dishes and the th- things that were popular in those days. And uh, um, again, I was working at Ernest, but I wanted to have a second job because I didn't want to stay home during lunch. And I got a job there immediately. Um, first day that I, that I went to work, I thought I was going to start some training. They gave me the station and there you go. No <laughs> training whatsoever. My God. What was that like? <laughs> but my, the only difficulty that I, I never worked with any computerized uh, um, point of sale yep. system. And I had the micros. And it was beeping at me all the time. Almost, <laughs> I almost threw it in the ocean. Because, <laughs> so that was a difficult. But I, I remember one particular day where uh, the shift was over and we sat down. We we're having a bite to eat after, after this. And I was having a few slices of tomatoes. And Larry comes in and he says, 
how come I don't I cannot have one of these because he, funny he, he loves tomatoes by the way <laughs> and so we start talking and, th- and there we go uh, then when uh, when it was time actually to um, open actually to promote uh, somebody as, as a manager there my name was 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 mentioned and he wanted to of course to know me better and so on and, and he offered me the job as a, as a manager at Chow first uh, and three months later, four months later, I was asked to go once again, boot back into my old background at their flagship restaurant in Los Angeles, Chianti. Okay. Chianti was a small restaurant, the oldest restaurant, Italian restaurant in, in Los Angeles. All the stars went there. Um, very elegant, again, okay. table size service. I was back again to where I, where I started, basically. Okay. So you actually, your, your, your entry into the the Hilaria Mandel world was through Chow, and then he, corrected, he recruited you for uh, Chianti, uh, Los Angeles. Any Anything we're learning as far as how, I mean, it, it seems like, uh, was he the, the, at the, the top of the pyramid for this, this organization, Larry? He was the president, yeah. 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 So what what was different about these organizations? It, it sounds like there was something that, that he was doing different at this time. He, he broke the mold, like you said, with Chow, and like he was thinking outside the box. What did you learn about how they operated um, that was so unique that was maybe different from previous experiences you had? Well, first of all, again, Larry taught me passion, and he was extremely passionate about Italy. Uh, there's no doubt it. He, he thought that he was born there, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, we found out it, he's a Jewish religion. We found ourselves in a synagogue in, in a small town in, uh, in um, south of Florence, and he says, I was born here. You know, so <laughs> so the, the passion for, for Italy uh, it was very clear. Okay. And he is the one who, who brought um, like a modern Italian food to San Francisco. Uh, first with Chao, then with Prego, and uh, a few other concepts. Harry's bought an American grill in, in, um, in Los Angeles. And with Chianti was the old side. We needed to be very careful because we had, there was an older clientele that really was used to that. So we changed the menu once again to reflect the, the, the uh, flavors of Italy in those days that were much more modern than what we, we served in, in the past. So he, to me, he was the, the father of, of the revitalization of the Italian restaurant and cuisine here in the Bay Area and elsewhere as well. Uh, but one thing, of course, he wanted to be very sure, authenticity. Yes, that's the word that was echoing Authenticity, right yes. exactly. You cannot just fake it. If, you, if uh, a dish is served like this in Italy, you're trying to reproduce it the same way that you will have it over there. But so what, what I love about Larry and, and his con- contribution to the story is that he liked to materialize his passion. His passion was Italy, and he recreated that that passion, the culture, the the food. Uh, not he didn't necessarily recreate. He didn't create what the people necessarily wanted. It was his passion. It's like what Ford says, right? If if, if you gave people what they wanted, he would have gotten faster horses. But he he knew the people. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe it was just uh, by chance that that real authentic Italian food wasn't happening in the states yet, and he wanted to break the mold and give people a taste of real Italy. That's that's what I'm picking up. Yes. Well, I, you, you had to consider that uh, this is uh, also a gamble because uh, how, how can you break years and years and years of tradition or, or things that you've been eating for, for so long uh, in Italian restaurants? Once again, as I said, um, the, the most common restaurant had uh, veal scallopini in, in 20 styles. Uh, 
that yeah. those are not non, not so if you if you take away that from from the guests what are you going to have mm. uh, are they going to accept it, the the new um, style of cuisine which is fresher um, less fussy but yet yeah. very 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 tasty uh, like like we eat in Italian you know simple but extremely extremely good um, so it, it is a gamble that he actually he, he took and he paid off because again he brought this fresh approach mm. to the cuisine that everybody loved but people have forgotten or maybe they didn't even know that Italy had evolved mm. has evolved as Italy has evolved now and people are still looking for a spaghetti meatballs for example <laughs> yeah. you know, so. so what was going on what were you doing because it seems like in a short period of time but you I mean you transitioned from um, Chiao to uh, Chianti to um, I'm going to say it wrong and Il Fornell I don't know Il why Fornaio. I'm, Il Fornaio. I don't know why I'm struggling so much with this word um, what was happening because it seems like you're, you're jumping around like he saw something in you so what were you doing that made you garner all these opportunities in such a short amount of time well I think the, probably uh, the, the passion for the business also that he saw that how, how, how I was conducting myself and how um, I was working in the dining room um, when I was while while at the last days at Spectrum, um, before we actually all left together, now now you know that how the Fornaio came about. Um, I was the director of operation for the Southern uh, Region. I was honestly I didn't enjoy much that job because I was I had to go and tell other people how to run their own business. Why didn't you like that? Uh, you know, I wouldn't want anybody to come and tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Yeah. So, uh, and that's one of the, you know, when I was a general manager that had a director of operation over me, this person really didn't come around much unless, you know, during the P&L um, because you knew that I was doing whatever, what they wanted me to do. Um, so it, it was when, when you being removed from the restaurant and although I, have, I had five under my my jurisdiction, it wasn't the same as having yours. Yeah, it sounds like your your passion is being on the floor, engaging with the guests, and and and, and being a part of it all. You don't want to be out of that. You don't want to be traveling around and telling other people how to do it. Because I mean, what your passion seems like it's in the industry, not on the industry. If that makes any sense. Uh, true. true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. So, any other. Big lessons. You said that Larry was a great businessman. What did he teach you about business and how to run a restaurant? What, what things were off your radar before meeting him that he put on your radar? Well, um, in Europe, in, uh, you learn the technical side of the work. Yeah. You learn uh, the Stadiums, the elegant side yeah. of the work and so on. I was never taught the financial side. I've never taught the how to run a business yeah. in, in profitable, profitably. Uh, and that's exactly what I learned from from Larry. Can you give me some specific examples that our listeners can, can something that might they might not be doing or, or, or a secret of the industry or anything along those lines? Well, a, again, the first time the first time I was invited to a, a PNL meeting, I had no idea what PNL meant. <laughs> yeah. you know, so I, I had no idea. So I, I was put numbers in front of me and they meant nothing for, for the for that matter so uh i had the, to ask and, and, he, and he coached me and again he took me line by line and the reason why it is important to do this i remember exactly saying if you want to be profitable uh, you cannot have both labor and food costs high is one or the other or, or neither <laughs> <Perfectly>. <laughs> um and, and so you, you you go by that 
mantra, the, the, the uh, uh, philosophy. So you, you, you look at your numbers on a regular basis. Yeah. Now it's so much easier because, I mean, now we have the internet. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have the numbers an hour later. Yeah. In those days, you had to well, wait. Instantaneously. Correct. Yeah. In those days, you had to wait for the accountant you know, to produce and everything. You could wait. It could be a week before you actually know your results for the week. Yeah. And, but, but it was extremely important for me was to learn where every, how everything counts from the, the purchases to the inventory, uh, uh, labor, and, and, you know, how to control it uh, uh, in, in several ways. The, the, of course, the kitchen staff, how to control the food costs and so on. Uh, and if you want to be continue and then be, be a business owner, if you know, don't know that, you're going to lose. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like... I mean, you were a huge part in scaling this business, right? And I want to backpedal a little bit. And anybody who's listening to this, I don't like to assume everybody knows what we're talking about. Uh, there are tons of skill levels here. So a P&L is a profit and a loss. Uh, do a Google search. Uh, look it up. It's really important to this, the, the success of your career. But kind of moving forward in your, in your career, you help scale this, this restaurant, uh, Il, for now, Il For Now. Why am I struggling to say it one more time for me? Il Fornaio. Il Fornaio. Do, I don't know my do, deal. Break it down. Fornaio. <laughs> Fornaio. Uh, Il Fornaio, you helped scale to six locations. Um, what did you learn about scaling a business at this time? Because this is the first time you're really part of a restaurant group that has multiple locations. Uh, how did your world change during this time? Well, this actually, once again, is the vision of Larry. Um, we, Larry left Spectrum Food, too long of a story, in uh, late '86. Um, because the company was sold to, to, to somebody else. And uh, he had he wanted to do something else, start a new company. And in those days, Il Fornaio was already in San Francisco. Il Fornaio is a big chain from Milano. Um, the Vegetti family started it, and then, but there were only bakeries. There were no restaurants, per se. So San Francisco had, four, and Bay Area rather, um, six or seven bakeries. The only eating establishment under the Fornaio label was in Beverly Hills, as a matter of fact. And I was living in Los Angeles in those days, so that was uh, one of the locations. Um, so the idea here was to, while he was actually uh, going through the non-competition clause with the company, is to um, revive these bakeries. And then the idea was to open restaurants with the bread component. The fresh bread was baked every day. The pastries were baked every day. The pasta that was made in-house to, to, in, to be served in, in the restaurant. Um, that was the, the ultimate idea. So when we, the first year, at least myself, I struggled quite a bit because I know nothing about bakeries, honestly. Yeah. You go into a store, they sell bread. Okay. <laughs> now all of a sudden I'm there and I had to come up with ideas okay I've come up with the ideas uh, for decorating the windows I'm, I don't know anything <laughs> about that so uh, we kind of well we kind of moved away from the bakeries because again we didn't really know much and the first restaurant was in Corta Madera and there was an immediate success once again uh, it, it was almost uh, not a repeat of, of, of Spectrum Food because these restaurants are, were really a little more um Tuscan style, yeah. I should say. What was it that you were doing that made it an immediate success? How how are you different? How did you stand out? Because uh, because of of the quality of the product, and once again, the, here is Larry Mindell at his best. Yes, exactly, yes, yes. Larry Mindell at his best. Um, the bread had to be perfect. 
and fresh and we had, we were serving a basket of bread with four or five types of bread on on the table which of course was a signature dish um the rotisserie and the pizza oven was the key f- the focal point of the restaurant and you could see the rabbits or duck or chicken rolling uh, roasting through there was nothing like this in the city there's nothing like this on the, in 1987 so everything was presented in a way that was uh, again once again new to the public and it was embraced immediately but the quality had to be there you can't just open a restaurant and serve crappy food yeah. it was really good so you left il fornao in uh 2000 sorry 1999 what what was going on in your life because you joined the kimpton group in 1999 correct what was the, it sounds like you were you were growing and scaling your career with this business why why did you make the move well, i actually wanted to open something on my own and i did in between um a restaurant called Frantoio in okay. Mill Valley and that the reason why actually that attracted me very much because once again the uniqueness the the owner of the building he was Italian from Tuscany and she's actually from from here California but they had a a, a a house villa that they rented out in outside of, of Florence and of course they also had olive oil that uh, olive trees that they would turn into olive oil eventually and his idea was to bring a Frantoio, which is a mill, where you crush the olives and make olive oil right in front of you. That's really cool. So you are dining, and you during the season, which is November through January, you see these huge granite wheels periodically going through, and the olive oil was made. Half hour later, we go around oh, cool. giving tastes to to the to the to the guests and so on. Um, so that would attract me. That was a, a unique concept. Um, we didn't get along much with the with the owners, but again, so I he was the principal owner. I left. That's when I actually did go to to Spectrum. So knowing, I what mean, you, sorry, to Kimpton. So knowing what you know now, this is your first business venture where you have equity in the business, correct? This 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 uh, restaurant with the spinning, with the the crushing the the olives. Um, what was knowing what you know now? What would you have done going into that partnership, into that business partnership, to protect yourself or to uh, make it more palatable for your taste? I would say probably that the con- the the agreement should have been different I'm the operator and uh, you stay away I'm you you it's your money and I'm going to watch after your money of course and don't interfere with the, with the with my ideas and if you want because you're the owner absolutely tell me what you want and I will just communicate right exactly. get, but get it in writing and have Correct. clear lanes so Correct. when when uh things don't go well you can look back to something and say I'm right or you're, you know, not that it, it's never fun to play the right, I'm right, you're wrong game, but at least there's something to back you up to protect your, your interests. Right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, so transitioning to uh, Kimpton Group, which is, or Kimpton Hotels, uh, probably one of the best, if not the best at one time, rest hotel group in the world, safe to say? I would say probably here, in, not in the world, but yeah. definitely in the United States, yeah. it, it, it is was the, the company that brought introduced boutique hotel to the to the market and uh, bill kimpton the, the founder pretty much kind of res- reminded me of larry in, in, yeah. in a way again he was really a stickler for for everything and he also a visionary um he's the one that understood that restaurants hotel restaurants they had to have their own identity and they have to be run by professional restaurateur not hotelier and so what, not, what not a hotelier correct okay and why is that well, either you have one skill or the other. Either yeah. you you know how to run a, a hotel or a rest. It, it's although it's, it's hospitality, you're still taking care of guests. 
it's a totally different mindset. Mm. Totally different mindset. Um, I, a hotel general manager can direct eventually, but will never be able to run a restaurant successful, successfully. Uh, so uh, he's the one who decided also that, again, the, the restaurants on future hotels had to have a separate entrance from the street so that you as the consumer... You don't have to go into the hotel and, and ask permission to go yeah. into, into the place. It's more inviting. I'm going to ask you one, yeah. one, more, one more time. When you travel, how many times, unless you, there was nothing else around, do you eat at the hotel? Not that often. Not that often. Yeah. And you're not the only <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah. You're not yeah. the only one. Uh, now, the quality of restaurants have changed dramatically over there. But that, that, I liked his philosophy. I liked what he... What he, uh, what he brought to, to uh, the scene um, once again his uh, passion for quality and service okay so um you were there for five years right until 2004 and, mm-hmm. and that's when you cross paths again with your your old mentor larry mandel uh how did the, did he reach out to you or did you reach, reach out to him how'd you guys no this actually what happened um in 2004 i kind of felt that it was uh, i was made Maybe that was what made me change the mind. Uh, I was made director of operation once again, and I had the responsibility of five restaurants in San Francisco with the Kimpton Group. The Grand Cafe, which was my original place where I, where I started. The fifth floor, which was a five-star restaurant. Uh, Massas, which remember Massas uh, in the old days, um, and a couple of others. And once, once again, it was now that I was removed from my baby and I had to go around telling people how to, what to do, uh, it wasn't the same enjoyment. Mm. And so uh, a group of friends, and my wife included, always asked me, when are we going to open a restaurant? When are we going to open a restaurant? When are we going to open a restaurant? I said, well, <laughs> you know, it takes money to open a restaurant yeah. and, takes, and takes everything else. I don't know. It, every time I went there or close enough, I got cold feet and backed up. Mm. Until this time, I says. Okay. What was the cold? Where were the cold feet coming from? Were you just nervous? Were you? Were you? Was it a money thing, or was it just a confidence thing? What, what was going on? Well, let's say it's a big. It's a big jump now. Yeah. Um, I can be a, a general manager or director of operation and still be very attached to the operation and knowing and responsible for the financial. But at the end. I don't have to put the money to pay the payroll. I yeah. don't have to, to, to put the money to pay the, for the, the provisions mm-hmm. and on and on. Now, as the owner, you have to think about yeah, those exactly. things. Yeah. So, uh, and, and when you then you're playing with other people's money because they were ready to give me all the, the investment and so on. And say, hold on a second, am I ready for this? Uh, other people maybe would jump to the to the uh, opportunity, but I, I was concerned. So that's what probably was was uh, taking me back. So how did you know you're ready? When did you know you're ready? Um, good question. How did I know I was ready? Well, uh, it it was the, the vote of confidence of uh, my friends, and particularly one the major investor, Peter Paul, uh, made me realize that these people really believed in me, and I didn't want to let them down. So the other question at that time is, okay, alone I cannot do it. I need to have a chef. Now, who do I call that I trust um, to open a restaurant with me that I know that not only is a good chef in preparing delicious food, but also he or she is a businessman or woman, understanding the food cost and labor cost and so on that they need. Because chefs are artists, and Mm -hmm. in most cases, they only care about what they put out, regardless of what it costs to put it to put it out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, 
if it's their money, but you know, when you know, when it's your money, then of course. Um, and I, <clears throat> I had met <clears throat> this uh, this man uh, Stefan Terrier in Orange County then at the time. Then we we kind of reconnected at, at Kimpton. He was the um, uh, food director for the Sir Francis Drake Hotel and Scalas. And we never worked together, but I we went opening other restaurant, and I knew of his skills because I was reading the profit and loss statements quite, a, and so I knew exactly what he was what he was doing. So I I called him up, and he was I, he, I knew that he was wanting to leave the the, the company. I said, Stefan, I'm thinking about opening a restaurant. What do you think?" And he said, "Sure." And then we hung up. <laughs> Not easy. Huh? That's it. <laughs> And so he, two, he clearly knew your reputation too. So yeah. yeah. But two months later, I hadn't heard from him, so I called him again. I said, "Are you sure you're in?" <laughs> and he said, "Yes." We met at the Campton place. We had a glass of wine, and the restaurant concept was born. Beautiful. And then after that, I put together the business plan. I went back to our to our partners. Uh, we collected the money. We hired the broker. They showed us this location. We went. We walked in. It was dark and dirty and so on. I said, mm, "My God, let's see." And then, you know what? What made me <clears throat> my heart sink actually when I asked Larry to come and take a look because, of course, there's nobody that I trust more than than I trust him when it comes down to to to, to all this business, particularly. Um, and he came to look at the location and looked around because 13 years ago, by the way, Friday will be 13 years, but this this restaurant is open. Um, the financial district was a little bit different. People thought that by five o'clock everybody went home, yeah, and there was not, nothing less over here. So he, he told me that this was a B minus location, oh. because he thought everyone was going to leave after I work. Yes, yeah. So and I already signed the lease. My God, I said, what do we do? What do we, <laughs> we, we, we do now? Uh, we went. We went further. We went forth with the, with the project. What was his reason for aside from the the location being away from where everyone's going at five o'clock? Any other reasons he gave you? I think that was the main reason. That was now th- you couldn't really tell the place what happened now yeah. because this mezzanine kind of covered the entire wall, the okay. entire ceiling. Okay, it, it was really an old. This was the kitchen. The, the dining room was the other side. Gotcha, gotcha. So you couldn't really envision how beautiful this restaurant could have been, mm. uh, and maybe that was also a, a, another thing. But I think that the location was uh, being in the financial district. There was a main factor for him to think in that way. So you said you you, you sat down um, with your chef to be, uh, and you you had a glass of wine and you envisioned what the restaurant was going to be. What did that conversation look like? What was the envisioning? What, 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 what did, how did it come together? Um, I had already the name because I remember when I was going to school, I walking uh, in Torino, my where I lived at that time, and I lift my head up, and here it goes Perbacco was it was a restaurant, as a matter of fact, and I kept it in my head. Uh, but I also analyzed what, what was going on in the city at that time, and one thing that was missing was Piemontese cuisine, the cuisine of Piemonte. I lived there. I wasn't born there because I'm from Venice, but I lived there since I was a little boy, so I had a good understanding of what it was. And it happened that Stefan loves that cuisine and the wines. So it was an easy sell. And when we started talking about making our own salumi, we were the first to start that um, uh, trend of charcuterie. Uh, charcuterie yeah. Yes. Then so, everybody came around. Yeah. So... Um, what was the type of cuisine again? Say it one more time. Piemontese. Piemontese. So, what that you said that wasn't happening anywhere in San Francisco no. or in San. So, I think a, a big lesson to pull from this is that you you look for so, something that wasn't already being done, so you carve out a niche and be the only one doing it. Was that playing into the equation? Yes, you wanted to be 
unique, if you want to say something, or different maybe, not so much unique. Uh, you look, again, unique uh, selling proposition. Correct. Is what I think yeah, Delfina, at that point, was very popular, and Delfina presented the Tuscan cuisine at, the, at this very best. Um, uh, Aquarello was serving a little bit more on, on the high-end side, a little bit of uh, some of the pasta in Piemonte, but not really focused on yeah. that. Um, and then other restaurants, they were doing either Southern, Sicilian, Naples, and, and so on, or Northern as a global okay. cuisine. We wanted to focus in one region. Yeah. So this is the second restaurant that you're opening as the like the, that's your restaurant, your vision, your business. Um, what did you do differently from the the experience from gathering all the experiences up to this point when opening the second? The one? second one? Yeah. Well, no, this when this is your second. Oh, the second. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah because Fantoya. Yes. So what did you do differently? Did, did you open differently? Did you did you take any experiences from previous restaurant openings that, that, that you applied here or anything well, like that? Well, I've opened probably for other yeah. people <laughs> 20 restaurants. Exactly. So that's exactly... Yeah. Well, you, you learn the, the mistakes in terms of organization so you know what works and what doesn't. Let me reframe the question. What mistakes did you make opening for other people that you didn't want to recreate here? I never made a mistake. <laughs> they made a mistake. Okay. <laughs> what mistakes did you see other people make that you um, didn't want to recreate? Uh, not being focused on the concept, the concept being a little bit loose mm-hmm. and not knowing exactly what you want. So how did you get focused? How did you know what the concept was and how did you stick to it? We, <clears throat> the, the cuisine and, and uh, the wines presentation, that was what we wanted to do. And also the how these things are so authentically served in Piemonte. Mm. And we didn't deviate from there. We took a quick trip. We had all kind of agnolottis, we were all kind of tallerines and so on, and we came back and started reproducing these dishes, keeping in mind, of course, the, the, the American taste, because uh, no matter what, uh, even though you, you, you go to Italy, you, you eat what is put in front of you, when you come home, you know, you're, and you pay money, you, you need to pay for what you want. Yeah. Um, so... That was to, to, for us was the key exactly to be to present a menu and dishes that were yet to be seen in San Francisco because of the Piemonte region and the story that we told that is what is the difference between Piemontese cuisine and other northern Italian cuisine? Well, Piemonte itself was the last domicile of of the uh, Italian royal family. That alone has a lot of influence in terms of aristocracy and and the good cooking and so on. Yeah, so I think what Umberto is explaining right now is that you had vision. And you had you set your vision in stone, like you knew exactly what the vision was, what you wanted to be, and you communicated, it, and you were on the same exact page as your business partner. So you're both pulling in the same direction. Correct. Um, what else did you learn from all these other openings over twenty? That's another lesson too. Between the lines, go open restaurants in somebody else's dollar and learn how to open a restaurant before you spend your own money doing it. Right. Well, well, again, once again, once you have the vision and the concept ready, and you know how to execute it, now you have that, um, and that. You have to open the restaurant and make it comfortable for the guests. You cannot just open without any training. You cannot open without knowing, uh, educating the staff because you want it to be prepared as the best possible to to uh, uh, romance the menu, the dishes, and so on. So every every restaurant that we opened, it was something different. And I learned particularly not to trust the architects. Because the architects always they, they'll design a beautiful space, but they couldn't care less about functionality. Okay, so how? Um, let's dive a little bit deeper into 
how you negotiate or deal with the architect to get them off of just focusing on the cosmetic, but not, but not taking, but also taking in functionality. What's what? What did you do to protect yourself from that happening? Well, I, you you have meetings where the, the architect takes you through the the aesthetics and the, 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 all the material that's going to be used, and then all of a sudden I ask. And what is the station that we're going to keep the glasses? How can we serve the guests without the station? So this is the only thing that experience. I mean, you need this experience to to consider all these things. It's when you haven't considered it and it's too late that you're like, oh, I wish I had thought of that, right? Then you kick yourself you know where <laughs> yeah. because, again, the service will suffer because yeah. you, do, you, don't have, you don't have the infrastructure. And, and to me, that's one of the, the, the key things that, of course, to run a restaurant. You mentioned something else that's really important, um, making sure that your staff is educated. What does that look like? What things, what boxes should we check when we're, like, how do we make sure that that staff is, is going to be well-equipped, well educated before opening you get as much as you put into that's the, the definitely this it, it is the key um if you are if you accept mediocrity then that's exactly what you're going to get mediocrity so for us and many other restaurants because we're not unique to this uh, everybody goes through a, a, a very long training and strict training and with this is the learning of the menu and not just memorizing the menu because you can read the menu on your own. Yeah, it, it is, but knowing what the ingredients are and why they taste in such a way and the history and, behind the ingredients. Correct. Right? Yeah. And then romance it a little bit with your own words. Um, of course, the, how we want you to, to to serve, but primarily really the knowledge of the product on the wines on the food. We have a wine director, but you know you'll be able to sell a glass of wine. Um, so if you have any qu- questions about the, the chef, questions about the restaurant. Uh, when, whenever you ask uh, is your server, whenever you go, a question regarding the, the place and you know, and you say, oh, oh good question, and they know the answer. For me, that is gives you already a sense, mm, how well am I going to be taking care of you because this person really does, is not in the moment. Yeah, and people love to learn new things, specifically guests. And when you can can tie a piece of information a new piece of knowledge to an experience to a dish then that's gonna that that dish that experience is going to imprint on them because they're going to associate the new lesson about the history of this dish with the experience they had at your restaurant so when they hear it you know what i'm saying like it's correct it's, it's not just a meal i had i just learned something about the culture of italy you know it, when it carries it has more weight it sticks with you, you know? You're absolutely correct. Yeah. In, in, case in point, you, you can talk about the white truffles, the famous white truffles, right? Um, it, it's a, a delicacy from Piemonte. But who actually found the truffles? These were the peasants. With, and they, those days with pigs. Then they, they trained dogs because the pigs actually ate the truffle. <laughs> they yeah. didn't leave it there. How did they use these truffles? Well, because they were giving all the, the meat, the good cuts to the lords, they were left with nothing else but eggs. So eggs every day, they could kind of be boring. So the, they found this tuber that had this pungent flavor, garlic and so on, and they were slicing on top of eggs. That's how the, 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 the origin of how the, cons- the truffle was consumed. Then the rich people, the lords, found out and they made it theirs and of course then you, now you can eat you eat it in many many yeah. other ways but that's why then cost four thousand dollars a pound yeah and then you open next door uh, we got to talk about that before we go to the speed sure. round uh, we're almost running out of time here um when did you know it was time to open the second the restaurant um when we when we opened this the the place next door was a deli and we were thinking about doing a bakery next door actually and do and, and to uh, 
bake the pastries uh, and the bread for here and eventually do something, a little business. But it was the height of the economy and he wanted a tremendous amount of money. He says, okay, we're busy enough. We don't need to do that. (laughs) Three years later, unfortunately, the economy wasn't doing so well. So he had to to leave because his business wasn't doing well. He's the same landlord. So we went to, we had an idea of opening a casual restaurant um, that will cater to the people that make to the mid-management, to the um, administrative assistant that makes reservation for the big bosses that okay. come to this <laughs> restaurant. And we made it inexpensive with the idea of uh, um, turning the tables fast. Mm. People that didn't have that much time to spend and so on. Um, we, we actually got the idea from... Uh, we had communal tables at that time. Uh, we were on the trip to Italy... And we went to this little town in uh, in Liguria, uh, where there was this artist making um, a mold for pasta. And while we were waiting for these things, we went. He, he sent us to a local trattoria that he recommended. Um, it was a casual place with communal tables, and everything was cooked, almost everything from the pit, from the wood burning oven. But we saw how good everything was and how quick and inexpensive. This was the least expensive meal that we've had. In four people, we spent 70 euros, unheard of, with, with wine. And we, so we brought back some of the component of that uh, of the concept because we don't have a pizza oven there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have counter and we had communal tables and some seats. Unfortunately, the, the original concept did not pan out the way we wanted uh, because it was comfortable, it was beautiful. So people were actually hanging around, yeah. uh, and instead of having the the, the mid management, we actually across this clientele went over there as well, and we had to change a little bit immediately because otherwise we were losing our pants there. And so, in, in, David, what do you mean? What, what, what did you have to change? What were you worried about? Um, the slightly the menu and the pricing because we needed to to make a little more money. Again, we were thinking about forty five minutes. Per table, yeah, and now it's an hour and a half, okay. and now we can do it. And also, we learned one thing that uh, financial district does not like communal tables. Why is that? <laughs> well, business people don't uh, like to share no, ideas. You know? yeah, so yeah. if they're talking about millions of dollars yeah, acquisition, yeah. they don't want to have anybody next to them. <laughs> so these listening. little things that you figure out the hard way, right? So oh. we removed the we removed the communal tables, and now we have. Uh, uh, tables like this, and sometimes the tables are about two inches apart. But it's your own table. So when you're trying to match your restaurant to the market, like you had to do next door at Bar 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 uh, Barco. Bar, thank you, uh, Bar Barco. Uh, what things do we need to, to take into consideration uh, to evolve our restaurant to the market? How did you guys? What 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 variables? What what data were you using to find the, the sweet spot, or was it just trying different things until you landed it? One, you kind of look around what what the market offers, and San Francisco it is big, but it's not that big. Yeah. So, and in those days, um, ten years ago, that's when we opened. The sharing, the place sharing wasn't unique. There were it was, the restaurants already there, but the the cuisine was a little bit different. What we wanted to offer once again. Um, we, we we chose to do Italian, but kind of go all over the place. So from south to north, from east to, to from east to west, and, and we made a menu that could be shareable, or otherwise you can have your own your own uh, meal that, according to uh, what you wanted. Most of these restaurants that they opened in those days were actually more more American, so there was no not that style of restaurant. And I, I th- we thought that the financial district needed something like this. 
um, casual, quick, but extremely good. Yeah. So um, I guess you answered the question, but I guess how did you know how much money or how did you – because you said that you, you knew that 45-minute turns weren't going to work, that the price points were too low and that you needed to – since people are saying an hour and a half, you need to get those higher price points to cover your expenses is I'm guessing where you're coming from. How did you find that sweet spot is, I guess, my question. As soon as you saw that, that instead of red, became, the numbers became <laughs> so black. Start, so, okay, I got you. So just just tracking your – No. Like, you got to track. You well, gotta, it's, not, it's not exactly like this, obviously. You, you, we, we looked at the uh, what we were doing and what was selling – and what we needed to do in order to um, how much more money we needed to to bring in in Was order there a to make it profitable. For? Well, we had a budget, yeah, but the budget did not materialize. So that's what it is. So now you had to work with what you have, uh, or, or you close. Mm-hmm. So you, you you had to tweak the the concept accordingly. Again, how do you do that? Well, uh, you look at the dishes. You look what, what can you you cannot raise your prices continually. So you you need you you bring in new dishes at a higher price gotcha, so gotcha. there is something different it's not the same uh, chicken uh, yesterday you pay 17 and now you pay 19 gotcha. it, it was a different dish altogether that's the kind of information i was looking for a piece of advice like that yeah. and how to make that transition do it uh, gracefully i mean i can't believe we're already at an hour and 15 minutes of recording time time flies uh, it really does anything we have not discussed anything that was is near and dear to your heart that you would love to bring to this conversation uh, before we go to the speed round well, well, first of all, thank you for allowing me to tell a little thank bit about you. my my story because every time I I think about it, it's been a long, it's a long, <laughs> long, long and great ride. I have to say, I enjoyed my time. I still enjoy coming to work. That's important. Oh, yes. That is extremely important. The minute, the day that you dread coming to to work. You're not going to be successful. So how do you keep that positivity up? What things do you do to make sure that you enjoy coming to work? A restaurant is like a theater. Every day it's a different scene. Or, or, or maybe the same scene, but it, it will, you'll have to play it differently because uh, uh, whatever whatever it, it is. And not all days are golden because something goes... Not only... Something mechanically can go wrong with a flood and all this, but you could have internal problems, or you have it a, a little more difficult guest and is not happy. You need to deal with that, or you have personal problem. Not so you have to be ready for all that. But it is the 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 positive thinking that kind of makes you come through because it says, okay, first of all, uh, it helps knowing that you come into work in a busy place. If you you would come in. Knowing that you have um, you know, two <laughs> reservations, I don't know how, yeah. how high my, yeah. my morale could be, right? Yeah. So knowing that you have a full house, it says, okay, what are we going to do today? Mm. And, uh, and also, what are we going to discuss at a pre-service meeting that will kind of motivate the, the staff to go and uh, sell a little bit more or just primarily actually take care of your guests? Because they'll keep on coming back. Yeah. And that's how we're going to survive. So that kind of keeps me always alive and, and, and fresh. I love it. This has been a great conversation. And uh, we're going to take one more quick break. We're going to bust out a true speed round to respect your time. Uh, I've loved this conversation. We'll be right back. Bento Box is more, much, much more than just another restaurant website developer. It is a hospitality platform designed to disrupt third-party services that come between the restaurant and 
and the guest. Bento Bucks puts the restaurant first and offers tools that drive high margin revenue directly through the restaurant website. These tools allow you to easily update menus, promote and sell events, share your press and media attention with the world, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and much, much more. In other words, Bento Box puts you in control so that you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bento Box is trusted and loved by over 5,000 restaurants worldwide because they empower restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships online. Sign up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable. One more time, that is getbento.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Focus. Focus. What is your biggest weakness? I don't know one. <laughs> what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Interview. When you're, when you're building your team, looking for new hires, what are you looking for? Um, somebody that looks in my, in my eyes when he, talks, he or she talks to me. And a genuinely um, willing to help guests. Beautiful. Uh, what is one challenge that you're currently dealing with today, and how are you overcoming it? Um, the lack of personnel or lack of um, uh, experience personnel, as a matter of fact. How are you dealing with it? Um, well, you, you, you look for the attitude, and you teach the rest. Okay. Share one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. This is something to, do, to go above and beyond what's expected from the guests, something that's common within your four walls but not common within the industry. Well, we only say that uh, reading the table is a successful situation, of course, but it goes beyond that. It just really be on the moment continuously. If you are at the table, stay with the table. Don't think about the next thing because otherwise the guest is going to find out. Beautiful. What is one code of conduct you teach your team. So this is a, a way to be, a way to act, a core value. Uh, well, again, st- be in the moment that that is absolutely it. Be, when the doors open, nothing has matter but what is coming into the dungeon. What is one book to make us a better person or restaurant operator? One book? Yeah. Um, there are many books out there, but uh, if you, actually, I guess probably, I enjoy reading Danny Meyer. Yeah. Everybody loves that Danny Meyer but setting the table. But it didn't teach me anything that I didn't know already. <laughs> okay. It was just sort of a, a mind refresher, but yeah. it, it is good to, to see in, in writing, you know. Beautiful. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Um, mentor their employees. Yes. Why is that so important? Because not everyone will follow you to whatever battle you're going but if you really show that you care for them they will come whenever you they'll do whatever you want i'm willing to go as far as saying it's our obligation as humans to mentor the next generation of people that's what we do as humans we pass down knowledge we pass down wisdom that's how we've gotten this far as a society by taking what's been learned from those before us and taking it and taking it to the next level right uh, so that's it's, uh, wouldn't you say it's our obligation it is indeed as a matter of fact you're right because uh, the, the simple advice that I give to every manager that I hire or even a manager that I promote within and I that's the first thing that, that I tell them you need to be their teacher their mentor not their boss yes awesome what's the difference between a mentor and a boss well the boss can yell yell out orders a mentor will tell you how to do it and 
show you the way how to you, do right? it. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, what is one technology you've adopted within your four walls recently <laughs> that's had a huge impact on operations, communications, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? Well, the fact that you can have uh, your uh, your numbers uh, you know, the next at ten o'clock in the morning. That that is extremely important. The the possibility of contacting the guest uh, uh, in in many many you know many ways uh, that wasn't we weren't able to to do it before. The fact that you can um, put out your word with uh, with an Instagram. I'm not I'm not an Instagram guy, but you know of course I, I know the importance of it. Um, newsletter and so on. This this the informatica. It is in, in incredible important. I love it. This is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? <laughs> if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurant would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three things, those three pieces of wisdom be? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. <laughs> Once again, um, believe in what you do. Stay focused in doing it. And I guess really value somebody the, the help of people around you believe stay focused and value people i love it this has been a great conversation thank you so much umberto we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out so who is somebody you respect and admire a restaurant owner that you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today um the first one that comes to mind here in now in san francisco giancarlo paterlini Say that one more time. For Giancarlo Paterlini, the sh- uh, owner of Aquarello Restaurant. Look out. I'm, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, what if we want to come join your team? What's the best way to connect, uh, to, to join your team, to be a part of what you're doing here? Oh, you can reach me via email or um, just showing up and um, I will talk to you. Right, I'll have uh, links in the show notes. Uh, this is episode 666. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com. Slash, this is kind of a bad sign. 666. Uh, we'll have a summary of today's. I hope you're not a suspicious, or what's the word? Um, somebody who believes in... Uh, well, I do believe on 13, and I don't like the number 13 oh, no. very much. <laughs> well, let's not read into that number too much, but uh, head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 666. I'll have a summary of today's discussion, as well as a link to any tools or services recommended and how to connect with you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to sit with me, to share your story. Uh, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you having me in the show. My and pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you, Sacramento and San Francisco. Great interviews. Uh, thank you for everybody who took the time to come on the show. Thank you for everybody who took the time to support the show. Uh, people, my listeners, people who are hosting me, people who are connecting me with their network. Man, uh, the support is just overwhelming and so uh, appreciated. And I am now in San Diego. So if you can think of anybody you respect and admire, somebody I need to make a, an example of on the show, please put them on my radar. And I want to connect with you. Uh, let's grab a beer. Let's grab some coffee. Let's let's let's. Talk about how I can make this show better. Let's talk about what you like about the show. Or if you're not in San Diego, but you want to join the community, head over to Facebook and search Unstoppable Restaurant Owners and Operators, and you'll find the private Restaurant Unstoppable group. Join the group. Join the conversation. Let's grow this community. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.